This episode is brought to you by FreshBooks. Let FreshBooks take care of the numbers stuff so you can get paid doing what you love. As well as MailChimp, the easiest way to send email newsletters, connect with your audience, and grow your creative business. This is the Great Discontent Podcast. This conversation was recorded in front of a live audience at the Wythe Hotel in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, as part of TGD Live, a monthly interview event series. Your lovely and well-dressed hosts for the night were Tina Esmaker and Brad Smith. Enjoy the show. All right, so we have a, we have a great show for you tonight. Uh, filmmaker Damani Baker and designer and writer Frank Camaro are here. Um, so let's get started. Let's do it. That was much more exciting than I thought it was going to be. So uh, one of the things that we're going to talk about tonight is maybe like everyone's most favorite and least favorite subject, which is um, money. Okay, not what I was going to say. You were going to say something right. else? Yep, I was. Um, yeah, or that too. But um, no, probably money, uh, which doesn't sound exciting, but I think that... Um, as people who create and make things, whether it's for a living or something that we do on the side as a passion project, having an idea is never the challenge, right? Um, the, the part that's the challenge is how do you fund that idea? How do you get the money to put that thing out into the world? So we're going to be talking to our guests tonight about that um, as well as some other things. I almost feel like we should have like a, a sound that plays when we say the word money tonight. Maybe. No, those people get it. Um, yes. Uh, now, in regards to that, because I think we are going to talk a little bit about uh, crowdfunding and Kickstarter tonight, but you and Ryan kind of made the move uh, with TGD to more mainstream and full-time with a Kickstarter campaign. We did. Um, in January 2014, we did a Kickstarter for our first print issue. I don't know if anyone what knew of TGD back then. Did anyone... Yeah, there's some, yeah, oh, you guys are awesome. Thank you for hanging More around. More cash prizes waiting at the door. Uh, yeah, and um, I mean, Kickstarter is, it, we could spend a whole night talking about crowdfunding and Kickstarter. It's such a, such a roller coaster, and I think we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, have you ever crowdfunded or raised money for a no, project? No, no. Um, one, one business was a small business loan, and another one I actually took a mortgage, a second mortgage out of my home to start a business, so not a joke. You guys might think he's joking, he's totally serious. Um, so yeah, I mean, we do all kinds of things, right, to fund our business ventures and creative projects. Um, so yeah, without further ado, let's bring up our first guest. Um, our first guest is a Brooklyn-based director and filmmaker. His first feature documentary, Still Bill, about the life and music of Bill Withers, opened theatrically to critical acclaim in 2009 and was acquired by Netflix, Showtime, and BBC. His most recent documentary, The House on Cocoa Road, revisits the events of the 1983 US invasion of Grenada from a personal and political perspective. His career spans documentaries, music videos, museum installations, and advertisements. And he is a professor at Sarah Lawrence College's Film and New Media Department. Please welcome Damani Baker. You have to do, like, do that again. Yeah, thing thing on your way up. It's so hard to, to yeah. get back in these director's yeah. chairs. Um, we look nice and cozy up here, but yeah. it's like really tough to get in and out. It's easier just to, to stay seated. Yeah. Um, Damani, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. 
Awesome. It's so good to have you here. Thank you for um, having me. So I, I love Still Bill, and I watched it again this weekend in preparation for, for tonight because you can never get enough of Bill Withers, right? Yeah. I mean, um, he's, <laughs> you can he's never just have awesome. too much Bill Withers. Never yeah. too much. And um, he, he, he offers so much wisdom throughout the documentary. And one of the things he says, um, I want to read it and then kind of start off there tonight. One of the things he said is, uh, we don't get to choose anything about who we are at birth. At some point or another, we have a choice as to how much we're going to apply ourselves. A lot of that is influenced by other people who nurture us. And so my first question for you is, was your creativity nurtured when you were growing up, and was creativity a part of your childhood? I just, yeah, you're going to make me cry already. <laughs> you said it was okay yeah, to make like, you cry, okay, and I said I would do my best Barbara, Barbara Walters. So here yeah. we are. Um, <laughs> yes. I, I, you know, I feel like I, I have been nurtured by an entire community of people, honestly. Um, of course, my mother, but in, in kind of appreciating my mother and my father and everything they gave me, I think I, I have to look at everyone that came before them. Um, and there's things that I think are now in all of our DNA that are part of our kind of nurturing possibilities. So um, I think, you know, I look at like my great grandmother, um, relationship I had with her, even being able to meet her in rural Louisiana in 1982. Like, I think that was part of, like, my nurturing, too, because I was having, like, a cultural awareness and a connection to how things felt. And so I think nurturing for me was about being open to feeling. Um, and I, I was very lucky to get that from, from a lot of people. A lot of people that were very hardcore, too. I'm, I'm talking about them very casually, but, you know, Angela Davis and Bill Withers and, like, this kind of pretty insane group of people that would either kick your ass along the way or or give you some some serious love that that challenged you yeah, yeah, yeah. depending on what you needed in the moment what you needed in the moment exactly, exactly. and we'll talk a little bit more about how Angela Davis intertwines with sure. your story in a bit sure. um, but I'm curious so you're a filmmaker and you know it's not like there's a step like you do this this and this and then you yeah. become a filmmaker yeah um, was there an aha moment when you realized that film was something you were interested in and wanted to p pursue for a living? Right. Well, I used to put on these really great shows in my backyard. And how uh, old were you? At seven. Okay, just so. for context. Uh, and about seven your backyard years was in, in California? Oakland, California. And I had this uh, backyard, uh, and I built a little platform, um, obviously pre-digital experience. And uh, we had this platform in the back, and I would put my sister in these shows. And uh, I was the writer and director, and she was the performer. And uh, that's, that was her job. She understood that. So we, uh, we, we would put these shows on, and I would bring my family over in the neighborhood to watch these performances in the backyard. And uh, you know that went on for a while. And then I discovered, literally, uh, this Super 8 that my family had. And then I said, oh, wow, so they, you can actually capture the experience and document it in some way. Um, and so then, I, the capitalist that I was at the time, um, I started to project the Super 8 on the family like kitchen wall and charge them like 50 cents to watch ourselves, like watch home movies of us in our, in our home. Um, and so I think the combination between kind of my, you know, uh, combination whiz, performance, backyard. You guys know what the whiz is? Okay, good. I was like... Yeah, the Wiz. <laughs> the Wizard of Oz, the Wiz. Yeah. So 
when did you did you yeah. just out of high school think I'm yeah. going to college for film? And sure. I mean, also, was anyone in your family creative? Sure. Or was that a foreign world to them? And were they supportive of you? Totally foreign world. I mean, they were they're writers, writers and activists. Um, you know, I, I wanted to be an aeronautical engineer. I didn't even know, I still kind of don't even know what that is, exactly. But I, I went on a field trip to the NASA uh, Ames Research Center in, in, in Northern California. You're talking my language right You know now. what I'm talking I do. about, man. I know exactly. Aeronautics. So I, I, I went to this place and I saw an airplane that could also be a helicopter. And I thought that was the coolest thing. And I said, I want to design airplanes that, and do fun science stuff and realized quickly I was terrible at it and had no skill or talent in science or math. And um, your question about the, the family influence on kind of media, I grew up with you know, activist parents and grandparents that eventually moved to Los Angeles and I spent the summers with them. Um, and I didn't even know Hollywood even existed. They didn't know Hollywood existed. So I, I was always kind of this odd kid it doesn't actually. It doesn't. It's fictional. It's it is. completely made up. It is. We'll talk about the things that are made up in the world. Um, but it's, it was really interesting because they had no understanding. Like, they thought, like, you get a job. You know, I, I was a descend I'm the descendant of sharecroppers and who migrated west. And to walk into the room and say, I'm an artist, and then say, I want to make movies, uh, was a completely kind of bizarre um, idea. My, my mom and my dad, of course, were very supportive, but I think culturally as a family, they were just like, really? Like, that's, we're going to spend all this money and work three jobs to put you through these schools so you can do what? Um, but it, it, you know, there was, there was, like I said, this community of, I think, amazing thinking change makers that really influenced the art more than someone being directly related to me in a, in a studio way. When, uh, when your documentary came out recently, did you charge your parents still? Yeah. <laughs> no, I comped my mom. Okay, actually. all right. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, I want to talk about NASA, but we're going to go back to Still Bill. Okay. Yet again, we'll save the NASA stuff for later. Yeah. Um, I think a Little Birdie told me you have an interesting story about uh, how you got Bill to agree to be part of this documentary. And uh, you want to you wanna talk about that? If it's legal, does not involve kidnapping, yeah. we can say it on it air. It does involve bribery, so... Okay. I think that's well, okay. We're good. We're good. You can tell well, the story. Well, Bill did not want to be in a movie. Uh, Bill, who recorded Ain't No Sunshine and Grandma's Hands, Lean On Me, like songs that we have all known in some way or another in our own lives. That's just kind of his, his genius. Um, my partner, Alex Lack, and I, who, who made the film, um, were stalk we were stalking Bill Withers. Uh, that's a good film, actually, you know, stalking Bill Withers. Um, and uh, we, we, we got in touch with his, his wife, who manages his publishing, and kind of Bill himself. And we said, look, we're these two uh, punk kids from New York, and we would love to do a film on your husband. We just, we've been in love with his music. The Live at Carnegie Hall album was like heavy rotation in my, you know what I'm talking about, um, heavy rotation in my, my father's house. And... Uh, and they said no for about a year. Um, and then eventually we went to uh, our friends at Celebrate Brooklyn who were interested in doing a Bill Withers tribute show. And so we went to them and pitched this thing. We said, well, look, you know, you're going to do a tribute show. We'll get Bill there. We'll get, you know, we'll have like a 500 camera shoot. There'll be millions of people. It's going to be this great thing. And, you know, it's great. And they said, this is great. Of course, we'll get the money. We're going to do a Bill Withers tribute show. Do you have Bill? We said, no, not at all. <laughs> And uh, they said, well, what's, what's the next step? And they said, we'll, we'll figure that out. 
And so we called and wrote uh, Marsha again and said, so there's this uh, concert that's going to happen in Bill's honor. Um, do you think he'll participate? And she said, well, I don't know. Why don't you guys uh, come and talk to me about that? And he said, you know, we're in L.A. now. <laughs> and uh, they met with us, and that kind of first, what we thought might be a 10-minute conversation, uh, led to 300 hours of shooting and three years of production and uh, ultimately still Bill. That's wonderful. Um, all right, so on the lessons learned tonight, number one, bribery. Um, write that down, everyone. And persistence. Yeah. Yeah. Persistence and, and bribery. Yeah. Keys, yeah. keys to success but you know, the, the great trick, discontent. The, the trick was, was kind of creating space that you knew may create nice narrative moments and beats, just getting to know him and hoping he would kind of show up to him. And he yeah. was very generous. And, and Still Bill was your first full-length documentary, full feature, correct? Okay. Yeah. Um, sure. Big lessons learned from that. If you had to pick one, um, would yeah. anything stand out? Um, patience. Uh, respect for your subjects. Uh, Bill made us take out the scene where he's wearing a bath towel. You know, there's these things that, uh, that, that you learn along the way. It's just kind of respect your subjects. Be generous uh, with your time. Have the humility to sit across from somebody and let them speak. Um, and then, I guess we'll talk about this later, funding. Uh, a lot of lessons learned in funding. Uh, that film, I was lucky enough, I had two partners and we were working kind of in the ad world and we were stealing from big companies that don't need it <laughs> and, and, uh, and paying for a still bill. <laughs> Yeah, we definitely want to hear about those secrets yeah. uh, in, a, yeah. in a little bit here. Um, we're warming up to that. Yeah, exactly. So you have um, a new full-length documentary out now, The House on Cocoa Road, which is a very personal documentary. Sure. Um, will you tell us a little bit about the narrative of that film? Sure. Um, so The House on Cocoa Road is a feature film on my mother and our family, really. Um, my mother was a incredibly, still is, incredibly active, strong character in my life and in many other lives. And she decided, um, after Ronald Reagan was elected president, um, that Oakland couldn't kind of sustain a healthy community and, and, and uh, culture for us as a family. And she packed us up, and we went to join a socialist revolution in Grenada in 1983. Um, and so with very little notice, she packs us up, and we are now, my sister and I, my parents were, had been divorced for uh, four or five years. She said, well, we're moving to Grenada. Um, and and how old were you? I was nine. Okay. And you thought yeah. we're going on a vacation. I thought we were going to Grenada maybe just to hang out for a little bit. I knew we were going to go to school. I didn't kind of recognize that it meant not seeing my dad because my mom was totally convinced that Grenada was the second coming and that this was the place we had to be. And in, and in many ways it was. Grenada's history, it was a former colony. Um, it survived colonial, colonialism, a dictator who'd been in power for 20 years, and an incredible young 30-something leadership took over, led a, a beautiful revolution. I'll call it beautiful because I think revolutions can be beautiful. And um, started a new form of kind of a socialist democracy. And I was a nine-year-old kid in school, healthcare was free. I had like curry chicken and mango at the end of the day and went fishing and took the bus by myself uh, to school with my five-year-old sister. And so it was in, in many ways paradise. And so here's my mother who fled 
Oakland to be a part of this new thing. Former Black Panther, Angela Davis' teaching assistant at UCLA, has now arrived in the next place that she thought African Americans could thrive. Um, and so uh, after less than a year, unfortunately, Grenada's revolution fell apart. Um, many of my mother's partners were assassinated in a coup. And a week later, the United States invaded. And so here's this American family hiding under a bed when US Marines land and we were flown home. So that's what the film's about, just a small, simple story. <laughs> Revolution and mothers. <laughs> no, it's, it's really powerful. I, I got uh, a little sneak peek, uh, got to yeah. watch it last week. So um, you actually started making this documentary back in 1999. You, were you fresh yeah. out of college? Fresh out of grad school. Uh, Bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, ready yeah. to make this yeah. documentary. Yeah. Um, and then you took some time off of it because life happened. Yeah. And then you came back to it more recently. So sure. tell me a little bit about yeah. what, what led you back to making this after sure. 10 years. You're right. It, it was, you know, 99. I mean, my tail was definitely bushy. It was like, <laughs> it was like, <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. I, I had put together a proposal. Is that gross? Sorry. Um, <laughs> um, I, had no, I had no idea what I was doing. Like, I felt trained in filmmaking. But the mental trained. pictures across the room right <laughs> now are just off the wall. Like, <laughs> yeah, I dropped the bright-eyed part, yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I, I didn't really know how to put this story together, and I was terrified of making a film about my family. You know, anyone that just kind of wants to dig in the crates and start asking questions to people who are really close to you. It's like, fuck, you know, it's like, no, 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 thank you. And so I started the story um, with this arm's length, you know, I had this Grenada experience that it was a very interesting story to share with junior high school friends and high school friends and then college and then grad school at UCLA for film. And I was like, why? Well, I guess I should make something. And Grenada has this fascinating history. It was a colony and it had a dictator and there was a coup. Like it was all the ingredients for the perfect drama. Um, minus, you know, the single mom who took her kids and <laughs> did this kind of insane thing. Um, and so I put it down and I, I, I started the film and raised enough money to go and shoot went and kind of asked a lot of questions. I don't know if they were all the right questions, but I came back with about 70 hours of footage um, going back to Grenada for the first time. Took my mom. We went and revisited our home. I asked her questions. She locked herself in a room for three weeks of the month of shooting because she uh, really went through a lot of the trauma that um, I had totally taken for granted. And I come down, and I'm a director. And, Mom, you go sit over there, and I'm going to ask you questions and this thing. And she's totally like, no. Nah. Sorry. And you also had different memories because we had different, you, exactly. you were nine. and yeah. yeah, Right. For her, she saw this as the kind of the downfall of this thing she had imagined mm -hmm. being to, you know, this, her children would grow up in another country and have this, uh, this opportunity to see people of African descent um, in their 30s doing this incredible thing. And to go back in 99 and it's like Kentucky Fried Chicken and capitalism prevails, um, I, I took that for granted. And so that was hard, and so we didn't talk for a while after that, that shoot, um, which was just me being, I think, more arrogant than I, I would admit then, because you know I, I was pissed because my film felt like it was ruined. I was like, oh man, you didn't give me enough stuff in Grenada. And she's like, what are you talking, I'm your mom. Like, you know, what, what about that? And I was like, ah, you know, so then 
we didn't really hang out that much. I mean, we still did mom-son stuff, but I didn't talk about Grenada very much. I put the film down. It sat on a shelf until uh, about three years ago. Um, and along the way, I, I did kind of recognize some of the healing that would happen being kind of the obnoxious filmmaker, would show up to Thanksgiving with a camera just because I thought maybe we could start to crack open some conversation about what happened in Grenada. Um, also, my father passed in the middle of kind of all that stuff, and so my attention went to another family space. Um, but I definitely kept shooting her, and some of those interviews from the mid-2000s made its way, made their way into the cut now, and they're kind of the richest, I think. It's funny how you think a story is ready to tell, but there's still some story to live before yeah. you can put it out into the world. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, so this film, so The House on Cocoa Road just premiered at the LA Film Festival and got a great write-up in the LA Times. Um, where can we see it? Will... Right here. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> that would be awesome. We are, we, we literally just, I mean, this is a great story about, I mean, we'll talk about this more. I think we were about... Uh, commitment to an idea, but we literally sent our film to the LA Film Festival five days after we finished because we were working on it up until the last hour and I was like raising money and spending money and sending our copy to be projected five days before. So we just did that about three weeks ago and I've come home, we're looking to get it at BAM. Um, it's playing back in LA, uh, but I'll still bill, not still bill, Wrong movie. Um, the house on CocoRoad.com will, will update it. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Whether you're an experienced full-time freelancer or just getting started, FreshBooks can help you get organized and get paid faster. It really can. Speaking of getting paid, talking about money can be awkward. FreshBooks makes this a lot easier with customizable late payment reminders that go out automatically, meaning you don't have to feel like a bad guy constantly sending out emails. With FreshBooks, you can also bill your time hourly or at a flat rate per project. When you're all done, just a few clicks and you can create an invoice based on your log time and your hourly rate. Are you working on long projects or maybe have a client that's asking for work month after month? You can save time by setting up recurring invoices that automatically bill your client for you. And if you're getting ready to kick off a really big project, you can get paid up front with deposits, so you aren't left strapped for cash or worried about bills mid-project. Let FreshBooks take care of the number stuff so you can get paid doing what you love. And don't take our word for it. FreshBooks is offering a free 30-day trial for TGD listeners, no credit card required. Go to freshbooks.com TGD and enter TGD Live in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Thanks, FreshBooks, for sponsoring the Great Discontent podcast. Now back to the show. Um, all right, so we are going to bring up our second guest now. Uh, he is a multidisciplinary designer, accidental writer, and lapsed illustrator. He is a design director at Abstract, a studio that is rethinking tools for creative collaboration. Before that, he ran his own studio for a decade, designing and illustrating publications, websites, and apps for clients. Print Magazine recognized him as a new visual artist in 2011, and the following year, the Art Directors Club selected his body of work for the Young Guns competition. In January 2011, he ran a successful Kickstarter campaign to fund the little philosophical handbook, The Shape of Design, which was published in May 2012. Please welcome Frank Camaro. So I want to talk about Bill first, because you are... so. 
you're a filmmaker, Damani's a filmmaker, Frank is a designer and writer, and you guys might be thinking, well, why are, why are they here together? But they both have a love of Bill Withers. So I love Fra Bill Withers. Yeah, we... Frank? Uh, yeah, I, we were talking earlier, and uh, I haven't had a... I rented your movie last night, and I didn't get a chance to watch it, and I'm really oh, looking you. forward to it. And... Uh, we were chatting, and what I said was like, oh, there's this one Bill Withers album that you have to check out. It's live at Carnegie Hall. It is like one of the best live recordings ever. And I was talking about uh, the first track, Use Me, how they're at Carnegie Hall, and it has like one of the nastiest like Rhodes licks. And the crowd there is like also one of the best crowds that I've ever heard on record at a live performance. So they're playing this song, and they finish, and the crowd goes nuts, and they just won't shut up. So the band has to keep playing the song. Like, they start the song again. And I'm thinking, I don't know if anybody here has been to Carnegie Hall, but that's a pretty damn stuffy crowd, typically. Like, it's really difficult to hoot and holler, and the acoustics of the space don't really lend towards, like, that kind of experience. It's just more, like, it's more reverent. It's more hushed. It's like, oh, thank goodness we're here in the presence of this musician. And uh, that show is like completely the opposite of it, and it is totally wonderful. It's funky. It's funky. All right, um, we're we're gonna go back to the very beginning here, and uh, okay. kind of uh, talk to to Damani about this a little bit. But uh, growing up, uh, was creativity part of your childhood? Where did you grow up? Tell yeah. us all the things. Okay, oh, I'll tell you all the things. Um, so. I was born in New York. I grew up in a small town in southwest Missouri called Joplin, Missouri. And uh, after that, I went to school in a place called Springfield, where Brad is also from, Springfield, Missouri. Yeah, well, and, I'm, uh, I'm actually going to ask you about this tonight because I have no idea the, the real answer, and that's true. Okay. So we'll, we'll get back there. We'll back up a little bit. Um, so, yeah, as a kid, I think I had, like, the same kind of childhood as a lot of other creative people. Um, I really enjoyed my time alone from other kids. Like, I just really enjoyed drawing. I had block sets that I would play with. I loved Lego, that sort of thing. So like my mom uh, would like bring home reams of that paper that was, um, it was like the zigzag paper with the little things that you would tear off on the edge. Uh, and basically like there was dot like- Dot matrix? That, yeah, like dot yeah, matrix okay. style perforated paper uh, that came in like that giant box. And um, there was just spreadsheets printed on the front of it, but the backs were blank. And I was just like voraciously working my way through sketchbooks. So my mom was like, this is perfect. Just like let Frank draw on the back of these. So I remember drawing these like huge, uh, almost like landscapes or cities, just like really long things because all of a sudden I had like four or five sheets of paper that were all attached to each other. So I would like tear them off at really long sizes and I remember just like laying it out on the floor and then like slowly working my way down those things. So yeah, I, I spent, a, I was an indoor cat when I was a kid. Like, I spent a lot of time inside. Uh, I'm pretty fair-complected. I sunburn really easily. So, like, when I was a kid, I learned my lesson. It's like, okay, you should probably stay inside over the summer. So that's what I did over the summer. Like, I would have a lot of art classes at school, but over the summer, I would also be inside just, like, drawing and, and making things and enjoying that process. And uh, when I got into, you know, further into middle school and high school and things like that, it, uh, we got a computer and then it turned into me making things for my friends and bands. And um, that is what actually like let me into graphic design. I started realizing that that was a useful thing and a fun thing and a thing that felt uh, related to what I was already doing. But it had this other benefit where like I could be supporting my friends that were also making art of their own. Right. Um, 
we would have gotten along well as kids because you would have drawn on the back and I would have actually done things with the spreadsheets. So, Sweet. Yeah. We would have fought. <laughs> yeah. Um, is that kind of your path? Like, I, I know before in interviews and things, you've said you've kind of fell into design. Is that, is yeah. that what you mean by that process? Yeah, Just, yeah. I sort of fell into it. Like, I intuitively understood that it was, it was a thing. But, um, and I knew that it was a career possibility. But as far as like really committing to it, I sort of always did it on the side. So when I was in, when I was in high school, the internet happened, right? So this would have been like the late 90s. The internet happened and I was also fascinated by that. So I was teaching myself how to make websites too. And um, that led into other opportunities of like very small pieces of client work, of making really terrible logos for people and flyers and like that sort of stuff. So I fell into it, but even when I went to college, like I hadn't fully committed to it because, um, I mean, you were thinking that like maybe I want to make airplanes, right? And I was thinking, I want to be Indiana Jones. Maybe I want to be like an anthropology major or an archaeology major. So my first semester I, in college, I didn't, I didn't choose. I was like, let's take a drawing class and like let's take an anthropology class and let's take uh, this crazy Old Testament class that I need to have for archaeology. And uh, the anthropology class was at 8 o'clock in the morning, so I dropped it. <laughs> and then, because uh, I was just like really excited about maybe not having to do things at 8 o'clock in the morning. And then uh, the Old Testament class, it was just sort of like memorizing kingdoms, like Egyptian kingdoms, and uh, who begat who, and being tested over that kind of thing. And it just wasn't, it definitely wasn't like finding treasure and like swinging from one platform to another and wearing cool hats. It was just sort of like, hey, memorize this list of names of people you don't know and names you can't pronounce. It's it's good you made that career choice, though, because otherwise the more recent Indiana Jones would have come out and you would have realized you made a terrible mistake. I, I would have been like Then there was aliens, aliens and that doesn't yeah. make sense at all. So yeah. really quick to go off script here, um, Springfield, Missouri. So I had founded my first company in Springfield around 2000. And when were you there for college? When was Missouri State? I, uh, 2000, 2002 until 2006. Okay, so I, we, was there we, until, I was there until 2007. We fully overlapped then in our time yeah, in, in Springfield. Yeah, and then Missouri. I was okay. gone. I lived in Chicago for a year, and then I moved back to teach at Missouri State. It would have been Missouri State at okay. that point. So. Yeah, I, I left uh, Missouri in 2005 then, so we, we fully overlapped while, while I was there. And then uh, I didn't meet you until New York years later. Mm -hmm. yeah. True. All right. All right. <laughs> Sorry to drag everyone through that one. I just <laughs> I well, needed to know. I needed <laughs> to know. So any facts on Springfield, Missouri? Anybody wants to know tonight? Anyone? Anyone? Okay, moving on. So now that we have that cleared up, we are going to talk about money. Let's talk about money. Let's let's just jump in. So I actually want to reference something that you said. Uh, about three years ago, we actually interviewed Frank for thegreatdiscontent.com. Um, if you want to know more about his life story, we talked for a couple hours. It's all online. You can read it there um, and know more about him than you'll ever I was need drunk to know. for half the interview. It doesn't read that <laughs> way, but it meant that I was like being very honest. It's how we get the good it. stuff. Yeah. Not with everyone, but it worked with Frank. And bribery. Um. <laughs> we went over this. Bribery works. <laughs> so, I think stealing was in there at one point too. Was it not Damani? Okay. You said you said we often think that freedom means saying yes to what we want to do. 
But freedom also comes from saying no to the stuff we don't want to do. And you said that in the interview in the context of money, and we were talking about how we lose the freedom to say no when we get into debt. And um, one of the things that you've done over the years that is really interesting to me is that you have bought up your time by working client projects for a couple months and then buying three months worth of your own time, treating it like a client project to work on something that's self-initiated that you want to put out into the world that's important to you. Uh, so will you talk to us a little bit about like, where did that idea come from? How has it worked for you? And is it something you would recommend? Yeah, so I, in my mind, I think about money in terms of time. So like, what is your lifestyle? What is your cost? And let's say, let's simplify the math. Let's say it costs you $100 a month to live. You can say, well, I have $300 that I can invest in myself, and I get three months. Um, one of the reasons that I think I started thinking that way was because I was working on my computer, which I owned. I was making things on screens, which you don't need to pay to produce. Uh, so the only thing that I took was time and attention. Whenever I left college, uh, I was really lucky because the design department that I graduated from had an exit scholarship. So they would say, okay, uh, we have like three scholarships for about, I think back then it was maybe $1,500 each, and they would choose three seniors to give that money to. And you could do whatever you wanted with it. It was just cash. So some people used it for traveling, for job interviews. Some people used it to relocate, to go to a job that they already had. I didn't know what I wanted to do because I was a very confused child back then. And uh, I decided to spend it on myself. So I looked at the $1,500 and I said, that's a whole summer uh, where I can just sort of like work and hang out and maybe pick up some freelance stuff and like just give myself more time to see how things unfold, to get time to think about what I want to do and not necessarily have to rush into anything. So I moved into... Uh, I moved into a basement of a house with four friends. It's a house with five guys. Bathroom situation was a nightmare. Uh, and the ceiling was like four inches above my head. And the rent was cheap, so it was amazing. So it actually lasted a little bit longer than a summer, which sounds like totally foreign now, living in New York. But you know, this was, this was over 10 years ago. Uh, and I think that that gave me, like this thing went off in my head where I was like, oh, okay, like time is money. Um, and I was lucky enough to, to be healthy and to not have expenses like health insurance and other things, but you can build that into the system and sort of say, if you want space and time to work on what you want to work on, sometimes there are associated costs with that. Like if you're making a magazine, you got to print it. you got to hire the photographers that you want to work with. But if you're like me and you're like, I want time to sit down and write something, or I want time to sit down and like do a bunch of drawings on my computer to stick on the internet, all that takes is time solitude-focused time. So if you understand how long and what amount of that time it takes, you can put a dollar amount on it. And if you're doing client work, you can say, okay, how much do I need to make in a year? And you just keep track of your invoices. And then whenever you hit that mark, you can sort of say, well, I'm done for the year. I can take the rest of the year off and work on any other stuff that I want to do. It's scary to say no, but it, it's easier to have the confidence if you sort of have this line, this financial dollar amount that once you cross it, you know that you're pretty safe to cover your lifestyle, pending any big emergencies. And that self-initiated work that you did when you bought up your own time also brought in other client work when you were done with that period of time. Yeah, I don't think that I've ever been hired for work that I've done for a client, which is both a good thing, but also like a very terrifying thing. 
which is to sort of say, like, it's up to me to, like, create the work and cast a vision and strike the pose that other people are going to want to hire me for. It's up to me to sort of have a perspective on something and to produce it to its highest level so that other people can understand what the potential of that vision is. It's very yeah. difficult to do that in client work. Yeah, it is. Um, Damani, have you ever gone that route where you've bought up your own time by saving up money from client work to work on something? Well, that's literally how we how Still Bill was financed. Okay. Um, we were all kind of partnering on client-based ad world um, projects, and we said, you know, 5% of every budget we could put towards this passion, passion project, really, until it runs out eventually. I mean, that was also the end of the movie um, <laughs> when, it, when it ran out, so. <laughs> um, it's, it's nice how that works out, yeah, right? Great. It's like, You're like well, I guess the, that's it. people don't talk about this. Personal projects, they just sort of grow into the amount of space that you're giving to it, yeah. right? So I'm sure if you had like $20,000 more, you would have figured out how to spend it. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and maybe it wouldn't be even as strong as, I mean, it's kind of the, the limitations make the space for new creative opportunities. Really. And I'm sure Bill found it charming that you were just sort of operating on a shoestring budget yeah. and that you were like self-funding this yeah. thing. Yeah, no, he thought it was cute. <laughs> <laughs> he did, he did. And actually he told us don't waste your money, which is a hilarious thing from, from Bill Withers. But I, it's like so inspiring to, I, I need to like really, we need to talk more because, you know, as an artist to, to, to really appreciate your own value and, and kind of think about your time in a way um, where there's a kind of a monetary piece to it is, is so foreign, I think, to a lot of us. And it's just amazing to see and hear how you've created a balance in, in doing that. It's really amazing. Um, I want to talk uh, about kind of the funding right off the bat. And Kickstarter's come up tonight. And I want to kind of sure. continue the discussion of Kickstarter. To point out, tonight is not sponsored by Kickstarter, but our friends at MailChimp, as you can see on the screen behind us. <laughs> Um, I'm going to reference my notes here, Damani. Uh, you raised nearly 114000 in 2015 for the house on Cocoa Road. Frank, you raised 112000 in 2011 for The Shape of Design. And Tina, you and Ryan raised, we what, raised 105. So yeah. you beat a, you guys, if it's yeah. a contest, you won. You won. <laughs> you won. Uh, I have not. Uh, I do have an empty coffee tin down here. If someone would... <laughs> like to drop something in on, on the way out. Um, but to talk about Kickstarter a little bit, or, or just crowdfunding in general, I should say, instead of Kickstarter. But um, a lot of mixed feelings on this. Uh, Damani, I'm going to start with you. But was it what you expected? Um, it was terrifying uh, and incredibly painful. Um, it was, it, it's like, it, anyone else? I mean, just by a show of hands, because I think it's like crowdsourcing has turned into a kind of cultural phenomenon, and, and I'm always looking for the other person that has a shared emotional experience. Um, we went to dinner one night, and I, I was listening to you for you and Ryan for advice um, pre-launch, and I, I couldn't have imagined a more emotionally exhausting um, and rewarding process. Um, the community that was built, the people who I do not know who gave $5, I'm sure you've heard these stories before, but it really, as, as an independent artist, it's a phenomenal and and kind of awful experience. Yeah. yeah, you don't realize how emotion it's such an emo emotional roller coaster because people are backing your campaign, they're sure. backing your project, but really they're saying I believe in you and yeah. they're backing you as sure. a person um, because you have a relationship or maybe they just think your product's cool, but um, yeah, has yeah, anyone it, 
You were gonna you were gonna ask. Yeah, has anyone in here done a Kickstarter campaign? No. Okay. If anyone There's wants, one. oh, okay. If anyone does want to do one, you know, hit us up. We we have we can tell you what works, what not to do, how to be emotionally prepared. It's a whole it's a whole, it's a whole thing. thing. It's a whole emotional guidebook. Yeah, there really should because it's like nobody really knows how to think about it. Is it is it a transaction? Is it a gift? Is it an assignment? Is it alone? Like out of all of these things, like what is it? It's kind of all of those things at the same time because you're sort of buying something, but you're supporting something, but you're also like gifting people money for their previous work and uh, like handing over some hard-earned cash out of goodwill. So when you receive the money, like if you're fortunate enough to get it, it's never really quite sure how you're supposed to think about it or how you're supposed to treat it. And um, yeah. it becomes a weight. You know, yes. it's, it becomes very, very heavy, especially if you're going to do something where the process of producing it is yet to be done because you feel it throughout the whole process. And a conversation that I would be really curious in hearing about, specifically something like a film, is do you think receiving the money in the way that you did when you did, like, did it change the way that the film came out? Or do you think it changed the way that you viewed your content and how you edited it? Did you have those folks in mind while you were working on it? Absolutely. I mean, the, the really amazing thing that happened with The House on Cocoa Road is my mother's radical 60-plus-year-old, predominantly African-American women, that community rallied so hard behind it, and, and it was just so heartwarming and just brilliant to see activists who most of the world does not know or recognize. And I, when I say activists, sure, there's Angela Davis and the people who we kind of give recognize their fame, but then there's everyone else who have been a part of even getting her to that space. And so that group of women that really like championed the project that are still using Facebook um, <laughs> really just took it to the next level. And, and it really, I did feel a real surge and kind of community behind me. I mean, my own community historically and a community of activists and women that we don't really know. So I did feel yeah. in my process, I could feel them with me. That's yeah. Sure. Yeah, that's a great reward from that, Frank. Do you have any kind I, of the, the opposite spectrum from the rewards instead of just kind of the stresses well, it's, and the, it's, uh, the anxieties that come everything, from it? Everything before that, I, the personal work I would make for myself and the client work I would make for a client. And this was like some sort of gray area where I was making something for somebody else, except I knew specifically who they were. And... Um, it kind of like made me work even harder, but sort of stunted me. I spent a year writing uh, when I probably should have been able to finish the thing in five or six months because I had three months just at the very beginning of just like bashing my head up against the wall of I, basically like I was just psyching myself out uh, because I was looking at my bank account and it like freaked me out. It just like really freaked me out because uh, Nothing like that had ever happened to me before, you know? And uh, it was like this really emotional thing. And I, <laughs> it was sort of an assignment, you know? It's like things had gone so well that that made me feel that the thing that I produced had to be that much better as well. So for some context, like this was 2011, it felt like one of the very first design-related projects on Kickstarter. Uh, I launched the project, there was like a $22,000 goal, maybe it was 24, I forgot. And um, I launched it, and I ran away from my computer because that's what happens whenever you launch something or send an important email. I like I like launched it at 
11.30 West Coast time, and I'm like, pew! I'm like out of my apartment, away from the computer. And I was like, I'm going to go eat a sandwich. And I just sat there with a book, and I ate a sandwich at this restaurant, and the thing was funded by the time I finished lunch. That sandwich was amazing. <laughs> I was going I was to looking, ask what type of sandwich was, it was. I was looking on my phone, and I just like I just dropped my phone. I was like, "What is? <laughs> this is insane. This is insane." So I knew that it was going to meet its fundraising goal as soon as uh, as soon as I launched it, the day that I launched it, and then the more money it raised, it raised five times the goal, obviously, and a lot of that is is uh, caught up in the cost of just producing the books, right? I don't think people understand that with many Kickstarters where you're making things. It's like, oh, you made five times your goal. And it's like, yes, I have four times the cost as well. Right. So you're, you have to make sure that things scale equally like that. But it, the, like, the higher that number got, the more it felt like a shadow over me. And um, obviously it's a, it's, a, it's a good thing, but it was something that I felt like I was just simply not equipped to deal with at that point. Yeah, and I want to dive just a little bit more into that. Um, something that's that's maybe a little bit more of a sensitive topic, but a lot of people seem to talk about it. You see on blogs, and that's about making money and losing money through Kickstarter. You see a lot of people posting or saying things on Twitter about, hey, we raised this money, and we actually still ended up losing money after the fact. Which you think about Kickstarter, it's not necessarily there as a for you to profit wildly and make a lot of money. It's for you to just be able to produce that. So I wanted to kind of hear from you guys. Were, were these projects where what you thought going into it for the Kickstarter funding, was it enough to cover what you did? Did you end up still needing to bring in more on top of that? Or did you, you know, take a nice vacation on a beach with the, with the money left over? I feel bad for the people on the pod. Actually, I feel good that the people on the podcast won't see what just happened. <laughs> Uh, there's, okay. a, there's a gift that we're going to yeah, include yeah, with great. the podcast. Awesome. Yeah, there, there is. Uh, so for me, I was I had plenty of experience doing uh, print production for publications. So the price that I set was very purposeful. Um, so things I didn't lose money on it, but I was freaked out by the amount of profit I could have made on it. So what I decided to do was to actually like shave some money off of the top. So what I did was I found several Kickstarter campaigns that I thought would also be interesting to the people who backed my project, and I pledged significant amounts of money to those. That's really interesting. That's so yeah. uh, one of those was uh, Gary's documentary, Objectified. Uh, he ran the Kickstarter campaign about two weeks after I launched mine. So if you watch that movie, I, I should have changed the credit, but I have like a producer credit and, or something. And all I'm doing is just like taking money from one pool and then putting it in a different place and just trying to like spread the love around because I didn't quite need all of the money. But like I was saying earlier, it's sort of like this goldfish problem. The profit that I had in there, instead of just sticking to the original vision that I had, actually increased the production value of the book that I made, which is both good and bad. And uh, it increased the amount of time that I had to work on it. And I gobbled up all of that time. And like I said, I just, I'm thankful that I had the time to work on it. But I don't think that I would have hit my head up against the wall quite as much at the beginning of the process if I had less time. Um, if I had three and a half, four months to write it instead of the six and a half, seven months that I took, I don't think that that time got produced a significantly, significantly better book. So... Yeah, Damani, when I, I asked the question, we made eye contact, and I think I saw a tear. But 
Um, so how, how does your story go? Well, you know, it, it, I was terrified because the 113,000, 14,000, obviously, it, you know, it, it's an insane amount of money anywhere. Um, but I'm also making a feature film and that feature film is still considered like a low, low, very low budget film. And also the Kickstarter audience um, didn't necessarily kind of understand that that was like a percentage of the budget. And so there was these expectations from the people who were supporting and then also what I knew it would took to actually finish. Um, but I knew that first round would uh, cover an editor to begin and the soundtrack um, by Michelle and Degocello, you guys know? Um, she did the score, and so those two things I knew I had to pay for. Um, and behind the curtain was the other few hundred thousand dollars that I still needed to raise and still needed to find. Um, luckily, Sundance came in and some others um, towards the... While you say we were Sundance actually, came in. What is, what is that? I went to the Sundance Lab and uh -huh. pitched the project and was able to, to raise um, some more funds oh, after wow. okay. Kickstarter. Um, so there was still, like in a, in a way, you know, that just got kind of the momentum going, and it took that 1999 footage and put it into gear. But I knew I needed um, a year and, and more funds. So the Kickstarter was really just more of the kindling of, yep. of to get the fire going, but there yep. was still a lot more cash Absolutely. needed. Okay. Absolutely. Do, uh, on film projects, do directors ever use a Kickstarter to sort of prove an audience for an idea to get Absolutely. that additional funding? Definitely. Definitely, definitely. And I was like, you know, as I said, my demographic of 65-year-old African-American women um, <laughs> that, that really rallied behind it. But also, you know, I think it's a film that has a broader audience than that. But, you know, I knew, um, to be totally honest, you know, I'm pitching a story about my family. You know, there's, it's not Bill Withers. The hero isn't, um, you know, kind of the first person that comes to mind in, in terms of funding and studio system and um, where support generally and traditionally is. Um, I think for, for artists of color and working in New York and raising money, and it, you know, I was, it was, it was, I was very moved that we were pushed over the edge, but I really did feel like my work was just starting. Okay, if you've ever heard a podcast before, you've likely heard of MailChimp. But it really is true, MailChimp is the easiest way to send email newsletters. If you're looking to connect with an audience or grow your creative business, you've got to give MailChimp a try. It's easy to set up. It's easy to use. There are flexible design options that make it so simple to create a great looking campaign. And let's say you're putting on an event in Chicago and you only want to email people that are from Chicago. MailChimp's powerful automation and segmentation tools make this easy with just a few clicks. Plus, with MailChimp's mobile app, you can manage lists, add new subscribers, send campaigns, and view reports all while on the go. Getting started with MailChimp could not be easier. No expiring trials, no contracts, no credit card required. Just sign up and start emailing now. Go to MailChimp.com to create your free account today. Thank you, MailChimp, for supporting the Great Discontent podcast. Now back to the show. I read that I read somewhere online that independent filmmaking is a lot like running a startup. Um, you know, you make a plan, pitch investors, hire your team, and prepare to spend several years on something that you put out into the world, hoping for a return or a response. Um, both require persistence. And so, I want to ask each of you, starting with Damani, when you um, run up against a financial challenge or a time-related challenge. Like what gives you um, the resolve to 
to, pers to persist and continue working on that project? Well, you know, I feel like I, I, I have to. You know, there is, like I, I mentioned earlier, this, this legacy of just really incredible people. I mean, to be blunt, it's like, I'm not supposed to be here. Do you know what I mean? There's, there's you know, I, my, my, what my father and my mother and my great-grandmother did to make this moment possible. So this is my contribution to that legacy, one, and it happens to fulfill me in, in an incredible way as an artist. And so the combination of kind of leaving a mark and, and changing how history has been written, because often it's written in ways that where I wasn't included. It's written in ways where my great-grandmother wasn't included. And so if you're going to give me the platform to do it, and it brings me tremendous joy, then I, I feel like I have no choice. So when I would hit those walls, I mean, it, in a way, it's like, well, what, other, what else am I going to do? Yeah. yeah, and you do hit those walls. I mean, we all do. Um, and Frank, what, what gives you the persistence to continue on a project when you're feeling discouraged or, you know, there's financial or time-related challenges? Yeah, so in, in the scope of a Kickstarter, you made a promise. You know, you have an agreement. It's, it's like a promise. People back it because they see promise in your idea, and then if it's successfully funded, it's, it's, it's an assignment. That's the only... It's a gift, and it's an assignment, and I think gifts sort of operate that way. Um, and there's this other thing, which for me is a little different, but, but sort of related to what you were saying. Uh, if you only work on one thing at a time or very few things at a time and they're very big and they're collaborative, they start to they gobble up your identity. And part of it is that you're scared of thinking about who you are not doing that thing. And it just forces you to keep pushing on it and to keep pursuing it because you don't want to think about who you are without doing that thing that you're working on. And I would say the difference between like a, like a business or a startup and a film is that you finish a film. And um, I think the arc is more than just like doing the final cut because that's the life that you're living right now, right? You try to get it picked up by distributors. Uh, you go around, you introduce it to folks, you do interviews, you talk about it. I think it's the same with a business, but the business doesn't, it, it doesn't like ship, you know? It's not, it's not um, crystallized in that way where you put the frame around it and you get to step back and say, all right, we did that. Um, two resources that we've kind of touched on tonight is, is uh, you know, time and definitely money. And both of you are very successful in your projects. And I wanted to just, uh, it's kind of one of my final questions tonight, talk to both of you just briefly. Um, advice to people that don't have the resources of either time or money, if they're here, if they're listening at home, uh, or wherever they're listening. Um, Advice that you might have, just a little nugget, a little morsel, nothing, uh, nothing huge. Just uh, if if financial struggles to get a project started or time struggles, what advice um, would you offer them? Well, I guess being the the uh, the product of a very like socialist community, I mean there is there is the kind of dismantling how we understand money in the first place. I think for me is the first hurdle because we're told what to value. Right, we're told what's important. We're told what, you know, what's trending and and how those things are supposed to be relevant to us. And I think part of the confidence that comes with fundraising or making art 
is to completely ignore and dismantle even what we understand capitalism to be, because it's this manufactured thing really designed to keep this and this, right? So if you don't believe in that, it, it actually creates so much more space. And you know, we talked about freedom. We talked about the, the gifts that, that come with the work. And um, you know, my, my advice is to, to really kind of imagine another world. I mean, The House on Cocoa Road is a film about imagining other possibilities. And that kind of simple idea of an alternative to what we've been taught um, kind of moves me forward. That's great. Thank you for that. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Part of, part of my like take money and turn it into time is so that you can get yourself further away from this idea of believing that the things that you want to do with your time, the one thing that you have, regardless, believing that if you have that time, you can go make something that you value. Because value doesn't always map to money. Um, and based on how you structure your life, time doesn't always need to map to money and vice versa. So I don't know, if, if you can live in a tiny house and like have expenses of $500 a month, then think of all the time that you'll have. Not everybody's willing to do that. Not everybody can do that. So I think that uh, there's like a very prevalent force, I feel like, in... I would say the online community and the design community right now to do what you love. And it sort of gets uh, pigeonholed into this idea that like somehow you have to make a career out of it or you have to make money. And the important thing is like if you start looking at things in terms of value and not in terms of profit or skill, it becomes very apparent that to me anyway, that there needs to be like a very good defense of hobbyists and dilettantes and People who just do things because it's pleasurable to do it. I'm not a very, like I was an illustrator for years and years, but I'm not actually very good at drawing. Like I was, I had a lot of assistance from a computer and I used a lot of silhouettes of things that I found in photos that I traced. And they were illustrations, but like there is like this pleasure for me to just like sit and like draw dumb things like plants. I just draw plants because they're nice to look at. I'm not going to turn them into prints necessarily. I'm not going to like try to turn it into a profit. It's just me like being a hobbyist. So whenever like you're trying to create something without resources, I think first off you should separate like what is it? Why are you doing it? Like what is it for? If it's a hobbyist dilettante, I want to get value out of it, personal value, deep value. Then you're set. You have everything that you need. If you want to turn it into a business, if you want to pursue something or like produce it in a way that costs money, then I, what I would say is seek the counsel of people who have produced that kind of thing before so that they can offer you some guidance about how much it costs and where the breakpoints are about like where it costs less to produce each one. So for books, like very rarely are you gonna get any price costs per book if you do under 5,000 of them. So it's like maybe it's just worth making the book that you want to make and only printing like 200 and giving them out to friends because the likelihood of you selling 5,000 is, that's a whole other ball game. That's a totally different hustle. That so, was, uh, that's wonderful advice. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you both. Uh, if you're listening to the podcast, rewind four and a half minutes and listen to that again because it's, it's really good. Thank you. Um, I have one last question for each of you. And I actually want to reference a quote from Damani. Uh, it's about directing, but I really think that it applies to all art forms and disciplines, no matter what you do. Um, he said, being a director is about balancing confidence and humility, 
In order to be an artist, I think you have to be incredibly confident in your ideas, but also be willing to be vulnerable and misunderstood. I think this is especially true in documentary filmmaking because you need to have the ability to sit across from someone and leave all of your expectations at the door. It's about creating a space where your subject feels safe and respected, and that's when you figure out what he or she has to say that needs to be heard and shared with others. Um, as creators, I think we always have to leave our expectations at the door. Um, the thing that we make in reality is never what we imagined when we saw it in our mind. Um, and although you guys may not have control over this, it's not entirely up to you, I'm curious to know what each of you hope to say to the world through your work. And we'll start with Damani. What good, time is good, it? Good luck, okay. man. Yeah, how are we doing? Oh, we're, we're uh, out of time. Uh, holy shit. Well, you know, um, I, I, do, I really do go back to this, this idea of just a real, like a better way to live. I mean, there is, you know, we're all in this race. We, we work really hard at, at doing what we do. And there is this moment where we all ask why we're, we're doing these things. And when I ask myself that as an artist, I know I'm doing it for my family, I'm doing it for my son, I'm doing it for everyone that made all of these sacrifices for me. And um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really big right now in my life on encouraging another lens on this planet. Like I really, in conversation, in talks with, with you guys, with talks we have in our home, is just kind of, we don't have to live this way. And when I say live this way, obviously, just being in this room, we're privileged. But we all have things that we're carrying here um, that we either want to shake up or improve on. And if it's not us directly, it's the person sitting next to us. So I, I think part of shaking that up is having the confidence and even the humility to say it's not OK. You know, I mean, we joke about a lot of the things. But what's happening um, on the planet right now is not OK. And so. Art for me is is that expression, and um, what do I want to leave? Uh, you know, that's just a good question. I mean, I think I'm I'm going to leave something every day, and I don't always know what it is. Thank you, and Frank. Yeah, Frank, you got a <laughs> I got a, got a high gotta bar now, my friend. <laughs> I, okay, so I think a lot of my work is about trying to see things differently. Like you mentioned lenses, and um, I, I suppose that whatever I'm trying to do, whether I'm like making an illustration or sitting down and writing something, maybe even like those silly plant drawings in my sketchbook, I, I want to basically give people permission to think about things in the way that they want to think about it and reinforce that they are in charge of not only what they think, but how they think. And if you can sort of like crack people open a little bit and say that there's more than one way to think about things, then hopefully they learn how to use that for themselves. Thank you. Great, um, thank you. Those are all the questions we have for you guys. Thank you so much for spending the evening with us, for sharing your stories and your experiences with the audience. This episode was produced by The Great Discontent, Wayward Wild, and me, Benjamin Welch. I also did the ad music. The Great Discontent features conversations with today's artists, makers, and risk takers. You can learn more at thegreatdiscontent.com. 
You can subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, consider giving us a rating in iTunes. It really does help spread the word. Thanks so much for listening.